Hello everyone and welcome to the Artwork Podcast. This is Jenny Danielson and I am going to speak with Karen Hellman. She is a curator at the Getty Museum and we talk about a Swedish early photographer. In Swedish you would pronounce his name something like Oskar Reilander. I don't really know how to say it in English, but anyway, um, he was born in Stockholm, Sweden, but then in the 1830s moved to the UK, and that's really when he started with photography. And Karen starts talking about what it was like to be a photographer in the 1850s, so this is really very much at the beginning of um, the medium of photography. I do hope you will enjoy the program. Thanks for listening. So at that time, 1850s, photography was this new medium. It had been, you know, announced in the late 1830s. So just a couple decades into its existence, uh, there was still a lot of controversy about whether it was an art form, what it could do as a medium. Um, could it be in the same room even or gallery as as fine art or as painting, as drawing um, it was seen as very mechanical and that because it came from a camera and not from the hand of a painter or, or a draftsman. But there were a lot of sort of arguments for both sides. Um, but the 1850s was kind of remarkable in England because that was when a lot of photographic societies were forming and a lot of photographers were getting together as a collective to kind of write about and talk about their medium and what were the kind of uh, incredible things you could do with it, what are the things that still needed to be researched, what was the future of this medium. All these questions were being battled and discussed. And so it was a very vibrant time period and then again still kind of open as to what was an art photograph or does is there an art photograph. So when Rylander comes in, he's coming as an artist and bringing his background as an artist and is sort of looking at this medium without restriction. You know, what can I do with this uh, new tool and how can I play with it like I would with a painting or a drawing? He was kind of unique in that way and that he was very creative and uninhibited by the restrictions. I think a lot of the photographers at that time were looking for sort of reasons to say no to things or this is the way we're supposed to do things and this is the correct um, kind of photography. Maybe also because he wasn't British born. He was, an, he was an outsider. He was an immigrant and he didn't necessarily need to conform to the rules that were being established. But so did he do well? He did. He did and he didn't. So it's because so that's the other interesting thing about him is he's he's not this big success story. He became very well known and well liked in the sort of immediate circles he was working in. Um but then when he presents his two ways of life at the Manchester Art Treasures exhibition in 1857, he establishes, you know, a name for himself and he's definitely well known at this point and because of that photograph but he's also disliked by a lot of the photographic community because again it kind of hit at a moment when there were developing these ideas of what photography had to be or what it should do um 
And he was more on the path of what photography could do, possibly. And they didn't really respond to it very well because it was a different path than what a lot of photographers had been following, the idea of the photograph as being truthful to nature and um, that you can imitate painting, but it can't rival it. And he, his two ways of life and his other combination prints were something that just hadn't been attempted on that kind of scale. And what are those, the combination prints? Yeah. Because that comes up a lot. Right. So is he, that a technical term or did, is it us afterwards mm, saying combination yeah, print? or It's a technical term that was used at the time. Um, initially, it was called double printing. It basically meant to print multiple negatives onto one piece of paper. Um, and he wasn't the first to do this, but he was certainly the first to do it in on an epic scale and in such a kind of radical way with the two ways of life. You know, a lot of his earlier combination prints were from three or four negatives and the two ways of life is about 32 negatives and it was a mixture of both the the technical achievement um, which actually a lot of photographers responded really well to saying wow this is incredible that someone could do this um, but it was also the subject matter and the fact that there were um, these kinds of uh, the subject of the nude female particularly was um, very um, disturbing to a lot of the audiences. And um, and then in addition to that, you had a lot of photographers that just didn't like the way that it looked so artificial and so crafted because, again, they were more on this line of trying to make a more naturalistic, um, uh, truthful photograph. Um, and he was making the... Uh, a very strong case for the fact that photography could be extremely manipulable um, or, you know, can be manipulated on a scale that was probably just, they weren't ready for it. <laughs> now, of course, I mean, we don't think about it, but at the time. Well, it's been a while. Yeah. 1850s to I know, now. No. Yes. Well, <laughs> so much has happened. Yeah. Um, so he, he worked in a studio pretty much all yeah. the time. Yeah, and that's what's incredible is that um, when 1857, when he made the Two Ways of Life, his studio was a small, um, originally his painting studio in Wolverhampton. And um, that was, you know, the, the those kinds of constraints was initially what maybe made him sort of go overboard in terms of the um, uh, the composition. So he, he made several different negatives in the studio and then would actually scale them when he was printing them onto the sheet to even then kind of expand the space within the photograph so that um, the whole composition is meant to be, look like it's in one room but it's actually concocted out of um, or one huge space but it's concocted in a very small space over with um, 30 different negatives so um it's pretty incredible. It's it's uh, and I, I I mean we don't need to just focus on two mm. ways of life, but no. um, because his other combination prints mm. are are remarkable too. Um, just the fact that he really didn't stop at at the at the thought that 
photography had to be about something that actually existed. He was, you know, sort of plowed right through that idea and went straight for, like, I could make any picture I want to, basically, and photography doesn't have to be limited to reality. So uh, we have to talk about his wife because yes, she yes. was in the studio yes. too. She's important. But so did he have colleagues? Did do we know? Did he write about his what his experiments yeah. really? Yeah. Did he uh, did he keep a diary? Today he, have you? As we know, we don't do we know, know that about? he did not keep a diary. Although um, he had, there are several um, reports that have been. Um, that were published at the time and then after his death in 1875 that sort of remembered him and recounted uh, various stories of the way he um, would um, be just very um, exuberant and energetic in his studio. He was very constantly working, constantly sharing his photographs, constantly. So he was meeting with people. There's a great article by... Um, a. H. Wall, who's a friend of his and of and an artist and photographer, um, who talks about this one meeting he had with some of his colleagues in Rylander and how he showed up with all these photographs and just laid them out on the table to share and to show them and to talk about them. Um, so he was certainly sociable. He also had um, a lot of um, friendships within. Um, the theatrical community because his wife Mary was a was an actress and um, uh, so it's presumed that that's how he really sort of knew a lot of the um, actors and um, members of the um, Wolverhampton and London theatrical world um, and then it, it, with photography he also was very connected with Julia Margaret Cameron and um, Lewis Carroll and photographers that um, we probably are more familiar with than Rylander himself, but um, uh, he was actually someone that apparently encouraged them both um, in their early photographic um, explorations. And so that's something that's kind of interesting. He was very clearly not a hermit and not off on his own. He was very much engaged and had colleagues that he worked with and talked to, but he's somehow got forgotten about. Um, but when you read these stories about him, um, you know, they're, they're incredibly um, uh, specific and um, they paint a really, like, lively, engaged picture of him. Um, and I think that's how he got the photographs as well that he was wasn't a a quiet still photographer he would actually engage with the sitter and move them around and sort of um, get them into certain positions without them knowing about it and and just um, was a very playful proactive photographer I really wish we could have we could have met him but um I uh, think I we mean judging by his photographs yeah. Yeah. I think he was fun yes yeah yeah and he staged just all these children and they play and yeah. he's, it's something very playful about right. everything he does. Yeah, I think in, another of his friends even described him as a um, child among children. He was, um, he himself would, you know, especially when he was photographing children, which was why he was so, became known for that particular subject, but he would actually act out um, different, you know, goofy 
game. That's or, brilliant. Or, yeah, though. brilliant. And then get them to respond and get them to relax and sort of forget that they're in this situation that's sort of awkward where you have this camera in the room and someone photographing you um, and you're meant to stay still and things like that. So he really broke those boundaries too. Um, and yeah, that you can even see it in some of the photographs that he's in, because of course he and his wife are in many of the photographs, um, which is also a kind of remarkable thing. Um, you can see his kind of, his, um, way of presenting himself in different gestures and expressions. He's just very emotive. And so that, um, must have helped when he was trying to get someone else to do it, um, for his camera, um, yeah, yeah, so now let's go, go to Mary. What yeah. did we know? She was an actress. Yes. She was very beautiful. Oh, we yes. know that. Yeah. Um, she worked in the studio with him. Mm-hmm. Do we know if she... Did they collaborate or was she more of an assistant? Do we know anything of that? Yeah, we do. We can... Um, we do know that she assisted him in uh, uh, making the the sensitive plates. Um, uh, he She assisted him in the dark room um, and we do we can kind of surmise that she did help him with several of the exposures that he's in um, so there's one particularly um, did she I think was is one that's in the exhibition where you see Rylander himself behind the model so um, she is the photographer of that particular picture um, but I think it's just a wonderful story of um, collaboration and um, uh, what's striking is just the longevity of it I mean of course their marriage um, but also their um, seemingly kind of um, fluid way of working together uh, she being a lot of the times the model but also being a supporter in terms of all of the labor involved with running a photography studio um, because there's a lot obviously that goes on behind the scenes um, preparing the plates and um, processing the plates making the prints um, even just a, a down to supplying water for the dark room um, she I know she was involved with that and was helpful with that so it's I like that um, the exhibition begins there, that it's not something that you discover later on in the story, that the, actually one of the first sections you encounter is called Oscar and Mary, and um, it shows the fact that they um, were very much involved in creating the pictures that he um, created and that she was a frequent model and that he um, uh, uh, kind of worked with her in the studio um, and I like that idea of sort of starting off a retrospective on a on a on a male photographer um, right away to say it wasn't just him in the dark room and and he would be the f- first to also say that if he were still around but you know that that um, it wasn't one person it was always two people that, at least um, working on um, his photographs. Because during this time, everything is quite heavy, isn't it? Yeah. And labor-intense. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, you're dealing with um, glass plates um, that need to be um, kept in the dark and then and sensitized and put in the camera, a, a large camera, a large box camera on a tripod. So it's um, nothing like the quick point-and-shoots of today. And so you, you definitely need other hands helping you handle all that material, plus... Um, 
Rylander famously uh, didn't take many lessons. He even admitted um, later that he only um, went to study with a known photographer for three hours one afternoon when he was just starting out, and then he just kind of took it from there. And so um, I don't, he wasn't a stickler for perfect negatives and perfect prints. Um, and he certainly um, probably did need some help in terms of um, uh, working the darkroom because he didn't have, um, he didn't take a lot of training in it. Um, but he still, he made these incredibly inventive um, photographs. So, And I also like that about Mary, Oscar and Mary's story kind of continues through the show so that um, from the very beginning and at the very end, you see them together. And um, once you've recognized her, you see how often she appears in his photographs. And it's like this familiar face that keeps coming back. It's, it's a really nice story there, I think. So when he died in 1875, what happened to his archive? Right. So uh, then um, Mary actually took over the studio, was running it for a while and um, making prints from his negatives and selling them. Um, And then uh, it's a little bit unclear. She does remarry um, and continues the studio practice, but is... um, financially not doing well so it's actually members of the royal photographic society that um purchase several of rylander's negatives so that's why they're um in the royal photographic society collection at the vna now um and they do that to kind of support her um uh uh financially and then otherwise the prints really just kind of get dispersed um she um, moves on, and we don't really hear much about her after, um, uh, you know, the late 19th century. And so um, a lot of his legacy is left in the hands of um, photo history, which is only hasn't really has formed itself, but has been um, really commi- sort of commanded by these um, specific photographers that didn't find him as particularly um, important, unfortunately. So he gets kind of um, forgotten about, um, which is another very interesting story. Um, yeah, he. so his archive, um, you know, you find it in all sorts of places. Um, uh, it, the largest collections are in the UK, of course, um, with the Royal Photographic Society and then um, we managed the Getty Museum um, just lucked into having a large number of Rylander prints because we acquired the Samuel Wagstaff collection in 1984 and Wagstaff had been collecting British photography, 19th century British photography, um, uh, really early on in the 1970s. And so we have this kind of magical group of his photographs um, but they're really kind of scattered around. And there's more to find. I know Lori has been continuing a, um, Lori Polly has been continuing to um, gather um, a sort of catalog resume of his work. Um, so this is the first time ever. Yeah. 
Yeah, that it's been brought together. All of these photographs haven't been together ever before. Um, and it's a lot of loans with that. You have 30, uh, over 30 lenders to the exhibition and up from all over the place, Sweden, um, uh, the UK, Paris, um, and the United States and North America. Um, so it's, it's, it's impressive. It's kind of nice in a way to have him finally be kind of put back together in one place and really honored in that way. And I, I do see it in the people that look at the exhibition. They're very, you can tell people are engaging with the photographs and it's, it's kind of incredible that he's able to do that from, you know, over a couple of centuries to still speak to us today. It's, um, it's a miracle. It's really impressive. He's incredible. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, looking at the photographs, I have a feeling that he liked people. Yeah. That he was curious yeah. about other human beings. Yes, I know. He definitely um, seemed to be very um, engaged and caring about others and um, in a way, sort of, I guess, you know, you could look at it in terms of an actor and sort of very observant of other people's expressions and gestures and sort of... Um, uh, imitating those or recreating those, but um, he also um, was a lifelong kind of uh, very charitable person. He apparently in Wolverhampton and and in London, there's evidence of him um, contributing to charities. And then his photographs of the um, homeless children on the streets of London, and and sort of it, it, even just addressing the fact that some people lived. Um, in these really, um, uh, you know, unfortunate ways, um, and making that the subject of his photographs was a, was a was a gesture of kind of caring for the for people. Um, so a lot of photographers weren't focusing on that aspect of um, London at the time. Um, he's kind of the photographic. Um, equivalent of Charles Dickens or someone like sort of really focused on that, um, the way that lower class um, life um, played out. Um, and at the same time, he's earning money taking photographs yes, right. of really famous yes. rich people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, it, I mean, he's um, uh, a typical in that way for a um, for a photographer at the time to sort of make money off of photographs that would um, be of well-known people. So he does have photographs of the kind of literary heroes of the day and um, uh, very, he had to, you know, support himself with um, photographs of um of of the upper class, but then he, you know, kind of in the same way, we could tell that his real interest was in um, more everyday life kind of scenes, even just domestic scenes of someone searching for their glasses or <laughs> someone drinking a cup of tea, um, uh, doing the laundry, things like that. He was very interested in kind of um, in those subjects, and that, that was also very unusual because. Um, they weren't these grand kind of fine art subjects. They were just everyday subjects. So um, is the exhibition traveling? 
Uh, no. So this is the last um, stop, the last venue for the exhibition. Um, but it, it was on view um, in Ottawa at the National Gallery of Canada in um, the f- last fall of 2018. Um, and then after here, all the works go back to their uh, homes. And um, yeah, it will be a while probably before a lot of these things are seen again. So Yeah. yeah. I know. Well, congratulations, oh. LA, for <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. I feel very proud that we were able to do this um, and to have this exhibition here. So it's good. Um, thank you so perfect. much for talking to me about oh, this. This is welcome. very, very interesting. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.